in uh, March of 2000, well, not a whole lot compared to the number, because this week we finished John, which we began in March of 2013. This is the 107th lesson on John. And uh, because most of you weren't here for the start, next week I'm going to do kind of an overview wrap-up of the whole, trying to tie the whole gospel together in case you missed it or in case you have forgotten it over the years. Uh, So then after next week, Lord willing, we'll start in Paul's letter to the Colossians. But today we come to John 21, verses 18 to 25. There are printed outlines in your bulletin. There are printed messages, the uh, manuscript in the back or over at the door going out that way. And feel free to get one now or later as you like. And all of those are on the church website, not only for today, but the last 23 years worth of messages. Uh, John chapter 21. Now Jesus has met with the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee where he provided them with this uh, final miraculous catch of fish. He has restored Peter, and he is talking to Peter, having told him to tend his sheep. In verse 18, Jesus continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. John adds, now he said that, now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he, that is Peter, would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. It's not news that we live in troubled times. I've just mentioned the atrocities being committed by ISIS in the Middle East that we see in the news all the time. There's the resulting refugee crisis in Europe and other uh, nations. And there's the ongoing terrorism with Boko Haram and all those groups in Africa as well as around the world, the Al-Qaeda threat. And uh, it's enough to just cause the calmest person to have an anxiety attack sometimes. Uh, Closer to home, we just experienced a shooting death on the NAU campus a week ago. And I think that showed us how quickly and unexpectedly life can end, even for those who are young and, and healthy. 
none of us are guaranteed of tomorrow. None of us are exempt from accidents and from uh, serious life-threatening diseases. And uh, it's often been said, and I've cited, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. And so we have to figure out, in light of all of that, how can we live with the peace of Christ in such anxiety-producing uh, times. And the only way I know how is, as we sang in that last song, to trust in Jesus, who is the sovereign Lord of all. The Bible shows us that the Lord uses even the wicked for his purposes. Uh, they are not thwarting his purposes. Uh, they unexpectedly fulfill his purposes before he judges them. And uh, it's a great thing to know that the Lord has numbered all of our days before there's even one of them, as Psalm 139 proclaims. And it's a wonderful thing to know that God is sovereign and that the final plan is laid out for us. We know that Jesus is coming, that he will reign and that he will set this world aright. Really, there are only two choices as you think about it. Either God is sovereign over everything, and that includes being sovereign over Satan and his evil forces, or he's not. And if he's not, then you have kind of two choices. Either atheism, in which there is no God, and it's just random chance, impersonal random chance that determines all the events that happen, or God and Satan are dueling it out in a view called dualism. We don't know for sure who will win because Satan gets a lot of victories over God, and both of those are very scary worlds in which to think about living. The Bible presents rather the view God is sovereign, he is accomplishing his sovereign will, and no one can thwart it. And that, that is the basis we have for peace and comfort and hope in the face of personal trials, world tragedies, all of these things, filtering it through that. As Paul put it in Romans 8.28, I know it's sometimes said, oh, that verse is not relevant. Excuse me, it's very relevant. For we know that God works all or causes all things together to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is never thwarted. Now, as John brings his gospel of belief, as Merrill Tenney calls it, good title, as he brings it to a close, he mentions several things which, frankly, as a preacher, as you study this, you think these are very disconnected verses. Um, in verses 18 and 19, Jesus predicts Peter's future, including how he will die. And then in verses 20 and uh, 21 and 22, Peter asks Jesus about John's future, and he receives a polite, it's none of your business kind of answer. Uh, then in verse 23, John corrects a misunderstanding that was circulating regarding Jesus' reply to Peter. And then in the final two verses, 24 and 25, there's a testimony 
to John's trustworthiness as an eyewitness author and also an acknowledgement, John's left a lot of things out of this gospel that he could have included. And as I sat staring at it, thinking, how do all these tie together? It finally dawned on me that this theme of trusting in the sovereign Lord is the thread that, that binds them all together. Um, twice, verse 19, and again in verse 22, Peter, I mean Jesus, commands Peter with the same command he gave him when he first began to follow him. Follow me. Follow me. And in order to follow Jesus, you have to trust in Jesus as the sovereign Lord and know that he is working all of your life together according to his sovereign plan and good purpose. And so, taking that theme, we can sum up the message of our text that we can trust the sovereign Lord and we can follow him in everything even when we don't understand it all. Three times, as we saw last week, Jesus asked Peter the question, do you love me? Three times, Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Three times, Jesus responds, then tend or shepherd my sheep. Uh, Now here, the Lord is letting Peter know that shepherding his sheep will not necessarily be a calm, pastoral, wonderful situation where you're sitting out in the countryside watching a flock and it's all wonderfully peaceful, but rather that his professed love for Jesus is going to be tested. He's letting Peter know your retirement is not going to consist of uh, playing golf and driving your RV around to all the national parks and having a wonderfully peaceful time. Rather, you're going to face martyrdom. And so the first lesson we learn here is that we can trust and follow the Lord for our future. And that future includes trials. And it includes the manner and the time and the manner of our death. Let me read again verses 18 and 19 where I'm drawing this from. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, when you were younger... You used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, Jesus here is proving true what Peter had just said in verse 17. Remember, he said, Lord, you know all things. Yes, it's true. He does know all things. And here he shows Peter, yes, I know about your future. And not only does he know it, but he also uh, sovereignly determined that future. He introduces it with those solemn words, truly, truly. And as we've seen in John, when Jesus says that, it means listen up, pay attention. This is important. And he uh, is effectively saying, Peter, you need to count the cost. You're going to have to live the rest of your life knowing you'll be martyred. And so for the next 30 or so years, Peter is living under this prophecy that he is going to face martyrdom. 
I'm not sure I would care to know at this point in life if I had 30 years left, which I don't, but that 30 years from now I'm going to have my head cut off by ISIS. Uh, I'd just rather sort of face that when I got to it. But Peter here is told what the future holds. Now, we don't know if Peter fully understood this or if verse 19, John is writing many years later, even after Peter has been martyred, explaining that's what he meant, even though maybe Peter didn't understand it. But we do know that that phrase, stretch out your hands, was commonly understood in the ancient world to refer to crucifixion, where they would forcibly stretch out a man's hands to the crossbeam, bind it there, nail it, whatever, and then he would bear it to the place of uh, execution. Clement of Rome, who wrote in AD 96, reports Peter's martyrdom. He doesn't mention how it was done. There are later less reliable sources that say that Peter was crucified and that when he, it came to happen, he said, I don't want to be crucified right side up as my Lord. I don't deserve that. Crucify me upside down. Again, we don't know that for sure, but that is a later uh, report that is given. But whatever Peter understood, I think he would see the contrast between his youth and his old age that Jesus is drawing His youth was fairly footloose, fancy-free, as we say. But Jesus is clearly saying, in your old age, it isn't going to be pleasant. They're going to take you where you don't want to go. Four practical lessons I think we can draw out of these verses. And the first one is that while we are commanded to give thanks in every situation, we are commanded to count all our trials as joy, that doesn't mean that we should pretend that trials are not Uh, difficult, that they are pleasant at the time. Um, He says, they're going to take you where you do not wish to go. And that means this, Peter was not seeking martyrdom as some sort of a badge of honor as a Christian. And I say that again, because both in the early church and even now, sometimes Christians have a weird view about suffering. And uh, in the early church, some Christians sought out martyrdom, thinking it would gain them extra rewards or it would be a badge of, of honor to them. And Eusebius, an early church historian, describes how um, when one believer would be condemned before the judge, uh, many others would rush forward and say, we're Christians too, and that they would receive their death sentence, he says, with joy and laughter and cheerfulness, and they would go to their death singing praises to God. Now, as I'll mention in just a moment, we should glorify God by our death, however it happens, and so there's nothing wrong and everything right, even if we can sing praises as we face death. But uh, it's wrong to seek torture or deliberately seek death as if it's a higher honor than dying in a different way. There's no condemnation here of John, and it was God's will for John to live a normal old, old age life and die uh, without dying a martyr's death. It was God's will for Peter to die a martyr's death. But my point here is, as in Hebrews 12:11, it says, all discipline 
for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. But afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so we need to be realistic that by faith, yes, we can give thanks in our trials uh, as we trust in God as a sovereign loving God, but we don't need to seek trials and we need to be honest in admitting it's not easy. It's not pleasant. It's one thing to count it as joy. It's another thing to put a phony smile on and say, oh, I'm just praising the Lord when inside you're really hurting. And my point is, there's nothing wrong with being honest and seeking prayer, saying, I'm, I'm really suffering. This is hard. Would you pray for me? A second lesson we can learn here is that following Jesus does not guarantee an easy life or a peaceful death. And the Bible has many examples of faithful saints who suffered short, difficult lives, terrible persecution, and painful deaths. If you read in Hebrews 11, as it's talking about all the victories of faith, without skipping a beat, it mentions some who were mocked and scourged and imprisoned and stoned and sawn in two and put to death with the sword. And that was after they lived lives of being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. But, of course, they received a reward in heaven. And uh, I think I've told you before the story about when I was in Coast Guard boot camp, a kid showed up with his water skis and fishing pole because the recruiter had told him, it's on an island, and you can fish and you can water ski there. Well, that was technically true, you generically could do that if you were permitted. What he didn't tell the kid was, of course, they don't permit you to do any of that. They control your life 24-7, and uh, you can look at the water longingly but never set foot in it. Uh, so he was a dishonest recruiter. Well, God is an honest recruiter. He says, when you follow Jesus, you may have to uh, pay a price. You may suffer you may be persecuted, you may die an early death. The greatest man other than Jesus who ever lived, according to Jesus' words, John the Baptist, languished in prison and got his head cut off at about age 30. So uh, that is the way the Lord calls us, is we may have to suffer. A third lesson practically we can live here is that our aim in life, then, should be to glorify God in our death. Uh, we're all going to die unless Jesus comes back. I trust he will before we die, but we don't know. And so we need to determine in advance to glorify God. And Paul had done that. He says in Philippians 1.20 that his aim was that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. And then he adds whether by life or by death. And Paul's life was ended with Nero's sword cutting his head off. John Wesley said with reference to his Methodist disciples, our people die well. They die well. Um, Theodore Beza was the friend and successor of John Calvin in Geneva and he was personally with Calvin as he painfully died at age 54 of a number of maladies. I think it was probably tuberculosis that killed him. But Beza wrote this, We can truly say that in this one man 
God has been pleased to demonstrate to us in our day the way to live well and to die well. And so that should be our aim as believers, that, Lord, however you take me, may I go out praising you. May I die well. And then the fourth practical lesson here is that the way to glorify God in our death is, of course, to live for him while we live, to follow him while we live. And two times, as I mentioned, verse 19 and again in verse 22, Jesus gives Peter that command, follow me. Now, to follow Jesus means that you bow before him as your rightful Lord and Savior. Of all that you have, he is Lord. It means that you seek his will for your, the direction of your life, whatever that may be. You write him a blank check with your life. It means prompt obedience to his commands. And if you do that, if you yield your life to him, if you say, Lord, show me how you want me to live, how you want me to spend my days, and obey his commands, then whenever death comes, you'll be ready for it because you've been walking with him. It's nothing new. Lord, you'll be with me through the valley of the shadow of death, and I will fear no evil. So the first lesson is just you can trust the sovereign Lord for your future, and that includes your death. The second thing we learn here is that we can trust and follow the Lord for how and where we serve him. And we don't need to be concerned about how he uses others. Let me read again verses 20 through 22. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, following them. The one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, we don't know why Peter asked the question. Maybe it was curiosity. Hey, all right, this is my future. What's his future? Uh, Maybe it was concern for John. Maybe it was the human tendency to compare himself with John. I don't know. But Jesus, in effect, gives a nice, it's none of your business kind of reply And then that command, your business is to follow me. Just three lessons I want to point out from these verses. And the first one is that Jesus is the rightful Lord of every person and that he has authority to determine how each one serves him and how each one and when each one will die. He bluntly tells Peter in verse 22, if I want him to remain until I come, What is that to you? You follow me. And so Jesus determined how Peter would serve him. He determined when and how Peter would die. And he did the same thing for John. And he does the same thing for every one of us who follow him. He is the rightful Lord. And so one of the most important lessons you can learn as a Christian, and I trust you've all done this, but maybe someone hasn't, is to follow what Paul says in <clears throat> Romans 12:1, where he, he tells us to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice to the Lord, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or the word can be translated, your rational, your reasonable service of worship. And if you want to know God's will for your life, say you're in college, 
You can't begin to know God's will until you do that. Until you write God a blank check with your life and say, Lord, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, here I am. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> he, will <clears throat> excuse me, he will direct you as you begin to follow him. <clears throat> so that's the first thing, <clears throat> is write God that blank check if you've never done it. Secondly, the Lord uses different personalities of each person for his purpose and his glory. As you think about Peter and John, they were, (coughs) excuse me, they were very different, and yet God used them both. Throughout the Gospels, Peter's the natural leader. He just steps to the front. Um, often with his foot in his mouth, he speaks when he should have held his tongue or thought about what he was going to say. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, he didn't know what to say. He shouldn't have said anything, but he, Lord, it's good to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. And he gets an answer from God booming from heaven. Luke 9.35, God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And that's enough said, Peter, in other words. Um, When Peter, I mean Jesus, washed the disciples' feet, of all of the disciples, it's Peter who blurts out, No, Lord, not my feet. You know, and uh, he gets corrected on that situation. Peter was the impetuous man of action in the garden. He whips out his knife and whacks off Malchus's ear, aiming for his head. He missed. Um, And he didn't think about that. I mean, he's surrounded by a cohort of Roman soldiers who could have taken off his head in an instant. Uh, He wasn't thinking. He's just acting. That's Peter. John, on the other hand, is the more contemplative and introspective one. John is the literary one who likes to see hidden symbolism and double meanings in, in situations and events and words. Now, at first, yes, Jesus called him and his brother James the sons of thunder. Um, But as John matured in the Lord, he often refers to himself as he does here. He was that disciple whom Jesus loved. He's that disciple who at the Last Supper had that intimate relationship with Jesus where he could lean back on his chest and say, Lord, who is it who betrays you? And Jesus revealed that to John. We saw their differences in chapter 20. They go to the empty tomb, and John kind of cautiously peers in. Peter gets there after John and just blasts right in there. He's going to check it out. Then John goes in. They both see the empty tomb and the grave clothes. It says that John saw and he believed in the resurrection. It says, though, in Luke that Peter went away. Uh, thinking about what he saw. He, he didn't understand it all yet. He was a little slower than John to understand. Same thing in chapter 21. They're out fishing. Jesus gives the miraculous catch of fish. John is the one who first discerns, it's the Lord. And then Peter impetuously jumps in the water and he gets to Jesus first. He's not going to wait for the boat. So that's the two different men, very different and yet God is pleased to use them both. And my point is this. While God sanctifies our personalities, I don't believe he changes our basic bent. 
That is, we're, we're given a personality, I think, through DNA, who knows what all, our upbringing. And that's basically with us for life, but God sanctifies it. And, uh, you know, I think introverts are going to grow into godly introverts. They're never going to be extroverts. Extroverts will grow into godly extroverts, and both are fine. God made us different for different purposes. Think about the Apostle Paul. Before he met Christ, Paul was a zealous, hard-driving man of purpose. I am going to persecute the church. And boy, he went after it with a vengeance. God knocks him down, saves him. He is a hard-driving, zealous man of purpose. I will preach the gospel. They can stone me. They can imprison me. They can beat me. And I will preach the gospel. Paul was Paul. But he mellowed. Remember early on in their missionary journey, Mark deserts them. And then Barnabas wants to take Mark on the second journey. And Paul says, no way. That guy, you know, he's a flake. He's not going with us. Paul's still that man of purpose. Later, though, God mellowed Paul out a bit. Because in his final letter, he tells Timothy, pick up Mark and bring him with you. Because he's useful to me for service. So, God mellows us. God develops the fruit of the Spirit in our personality as we grow in Him. But you got to just recognize uh, we all have different personalities, and one isn't right and another wrong. Some have certain strengths and certain weaknesses, and we need to be aware of those in ourselves, but ask the Lord to sanctify us and also value others who are different than you are. Different doesn't mean wrong. It just means different, and God uses that. A third practical lesson here is that while it's helpful to learn from those who are different than we are, it's not profitable to compare our ministries to theirs. Uh, The Lord tells Peter he's going to die a martyr's death, and then Peter says, well, Lord, what about this man? And the Lord basically says, that's my business, not yours. Your business is to follow me. Now, speaking as a pastor, I'll just be honest, it's very easy to compare myself with guys who have more visibly successful ministries and say, well, Lord, why are you blessing that guy and not me as you're blessing him? You know, I'll be honest, I would love to have one-tenth of the impact that a guy like John MacArthur has around the world. Just phenomenal. The source of the impact that comes out of his ministry or John Piper same thing and and I'll be I've learned a lot from those guys and I'm still learning from them and I learn a lot by reading all the great pastors of the past century Spurgeon and Ryle and all these men but the bottom line is this I'm not they I am not who they are and I never will be and so I hope I can glean from them And I hope you can accept that I'm not they, but I am not. And they have unique gifts and abilities I lack, and I rejoice how God uses those men. They're part of the team. But God is sovereign over whom he uses and how he uses them. Many, many years ago, I I looked it up in my reading record. It was in 1981. I had been reading the autobiography of C.H. Spurgeon, the great British preacher, and um, You have to understand, Spurgeon 
is commonly thought of as the greatest preacher of the 19th century. The, the way they measured attendance at his church, which would hold 6,000 people, was on how many they had to turn away. It was always full. And if you didn't get there early, you didn't get a seat. And on some Sundays, he would ask all of his members, next Sunday, would you stay away so that those who aren't regular can come and I'll preach the gospel to them? And they'd pack it out with people who weren't regular. So this is a phenomenal ministry. Well, one day I'm out jogging and I'd been reading that. And so I, I prayed, Lord, would you bless my ministry as you bless Spurgeon? Now, that's kind of what you call a Hail Mary prayer, you know? You know what a Hail Mary pass is when a guy just throws for the goal line and hopes some guy out there catches it to win the game? Well, that was a Hail Mary prayer. And uh, as soon as I prayed it, I think the Lord, he didn't speak audibly, but I think he put this thought into my mind. Uh, which virgin are you praying about? Charles or John? Now, people have not heard of John Spurgeon. John Spurgeon was Charles' dad. And he was a faithful man of God. He pastored a church in England. He actually outlived Charles. Charles had all kinds of health problems in God's sovereignty. And he died at age 57. John Spurgeon outlived his own son and died at age 90. But he was obscure. And the point was, if he hadn't had a famous son, he was like so many tens of thousands of pastors around the world. They live, they die in obscurity. And nobody knows about them, but they were faithful in shepherding the flock as Jesus charges Peter here. And he would have lived and died and gone to his grave and nobody would know about John Spurgeon. And so it was as if the Lord was saying to me, your job is to be as faithful as John Spurgeon. And it's my job to pick which one will be the Charles Spurgeons of your day. But that's up to me, not you. And so... um, That was a good lesson for me to learn. So, first lesson here is trust and follow the Lord for your future. That includes how you may die, when you die. Second lesson, we can trust the Lord and follow Him uh, in how and where we serve Him. And we don't need to be comparing ourselves to others and jealous of their ministries. That's up to the Lord. The third lesson here is that we can trust the Lord concerning His promise to return even when we don't understand the details of it. Verses 22 and 23. Jesus says to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So John wrote this to correct a mistaken rumor that's floating around in the early church at the end of the first century that John would not die before Jesus returns. And John clarifies that isn't what Jesus said. Uh, John outlived all the other disciples, but he's, he's saying, Jesus only said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, I might point out there are scholars who argue that John didn't write this verse, um, that John had already died, and so people's faith was being shaken. Maybe the Ephesian elders, John spent his final days in Ephesus, maybe they added this to correct the rumor. I think it's more likely John heard about this rumor going around, 
and added this in advance, knowing I could die. Uh, That isn't what the Lord promised. And so he is correcting it so that people who thought, hey, the Lord's going to come back before John dies, weren't shaken in their faith when John died. But you know, there are people in our day getting carried away with this. Um, Some of you know the name Harold Camping. Uh, He is now departed, but uh, he kept setting dates for when Jesus would come. And then when he didn't come, he would, well, we got to readjust the calculation. Uh, Back in the late 80s, I got a booklet, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Well, they missed it, didn't they? Uh, Here we are, uh, 20... Three years or so later, or 20, whatever it is, seven years later, and uh, he hasn't come. Peter predicted in the last days, scoffers are going to mock believers. Second Peter 3, 4, he says, they're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? But don't let that shake you from the promise of his coming. Twice here, Jesus repeats or John repeats, verse 22 and verse 23, he is coming. And if he's not coming, then he's a liar. He is a liar because he promised he would come back in chapter 14. Sometimes, just to be candid here, I get asked, why, why don't you preach through the book of Revelation? I'm going to tell you why. I don't understand it. And I don't preach what I generally don't understand. I understand the big idea. That's pretty clear. Jesus is coming, and he's going to win big time when he comes, and you better be on his team. Okay, that part is really clear. It's all the details. And I have read multiple books. I just ordered another one. It's on my shelf at home waiting to be read. But none of them have where I've gone, yeah, that's the answer. So when I figure that out, I'll preach it, okay? But until then, uh, I am not doubting for a minute the big idea. Jesus is coming, and we need to live in light of that coming. That is certain, even if we disagree over the details. The final lesson here, then, is that we can trust the Lord concerning the reliability of his word, and that includes what it or or that means what it includes and what it doesn't include, what it omits, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things, and he wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, some conservative scholars think that verses 24 and 25 were added after, as a postscript, after John's death, perhaps by, as I said, the Ephesian elders or some other editors. And they do that because John's, or because verse 24 says, we know that his testimony is true. So it may be a group testifying to the truthfulness of John's witness. Or it could be John often, in 1 John especially, uses the editorial we. Um, and so it could just be John writing. I tend to be inclined that way. Um, 
in uh, John 19.35, you'll remember that John assured us when he mentioned how the soldiers thrust the spear into Jesus' side and blood and water came out. And John said, I saw that and I am testifying that that is true. And John is doing the same thing here. He's testifying, saying, I was with Jesus in all these things that I have written about. I was there. I'm telling you, this is true. I'm not making these up as stories. And he wants us to believe his testimony and put our faith in Jesus. And so he ends the book by repeating the selectivity of his gospel. Remember back in chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31, John said this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So John is saying, I'm not including the whole thing. And then he explains, but these have been written, and here's why, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Here he says, if I wrote down everything that Jesus did, even the world couldn't have contained the books. And of course, he's using hyperbole there, but uh, D.A. Carson, Dr. Carson says, well, in one sense, it's not hyperbole because if Jesus is who John presents him to be in the prologue, the eternal word of God who took on human flesh and dwelt among us, then it's true. All the books in the world or, or the whole world would not contain all the books that could be written. Sometimes I think, man, I wish scripture had been a little more elaborate there. And honestly, sometimes I think I could do without all this detail, you know, when you're reading through some of the Old Testament and it gives 70 verses of genealogies or something. Um, but I believe there we just have to trust the Lord gave us all that we need for life and godliness. He gave us all we need to come to know Jesus as Savior. He, came, he gave us all we need to know to grow in him in godliness and so rather than wishing we had something we don't have, I think we just need to grow in understanding and applying what we do have in Scripture. And so John leaves us with this crucial question. Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? That is the crucial question. If you leave John with that question unanswered, you've missed it. You've missed his purpose. And if you have believed in him, this final section then says, well, are you trusting him for your future? Are you trusting him for the trials you're now facing and the ones you will face? Are you faithfully serving him as you should be? And are you living each day in light of his promise to return? It could be soon. And are you trusting the reliability of his inspired written word? John writes these things so that every single one of us would believe in Jesus and live under his lordship. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this gospel of John. What a wonderful, marvelous book. Simple and yet profound. Uh, a book that the newest believer can read, even an unbeliever can read and come to faith. 
A new believer can read and grow in faith. A mature believer can read and grow deeper in faith. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply its message to each and every one of us as we uh, conclude it. And that there would be no one leaving here this morning who has not put his or her trust fully in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal life. And none who have not sought you and said, Lord, here's my life. It's a blank check. Would you please fill it in as you choose that we all would get to the end and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.